Good morning, everybody. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 9. Acts, chapter 9. We'll also eventually get to 2 Corinthians, I think, and Galatians and all that. So, uh, yes, please come to, uh, on Wednesday. It's going to be a great time, um, and uh, looking forward to uh, some ball, playing some ball. Uh, and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, uh, Justin and I continue to, to play as well as we just did, so that's good. Um, and uh, hey, uh, and we're praying for, for baby uh, Bryn this morning. I just wanted to say welcome to, to special guests, Cindy and Reed, grandparents. Thank you guys uh, so much for being here, and congratulations. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, we are talking about before and after today, as Mary said. We're talking about this conversion story of uh, Saul of Tarsus, who became, uh, who was then the Apostle Paul. So um, throughout recorded history, throughout the history of literature, there have been some stark examples of before and after. Uh, Some of the best stories occur when a setting is created, and then the very environment where the story takes place is then seen in a completely different light because of a specific event. Uh, for anyone who appreciates 19th century literature, short stories, Washington Irving's tale, Rip Van Winkle, tells the story of a man who fell asleep, drunk in the woods one day, and wakes up 20 20 years later. Uh, It's kind of like the first episode of The Twilight Zone. Uh, The thing is, uh, Van Winkle went to sleep in colonial America, and while he slept, the American Revolution uh, occurred. And, And so he wakes up and he wanders back into town, and it's like it's a whole different world. He almost gets himself killed when he announces his allegiance to the king, and he wonders who's this George Washington guy that now has his picture hanging in the local tavern. Or maybe you're not into 19th century short stories, and you like boy wizards instead. Think of the first Harry Potter novel. When when Harry first discovers that he's a wizard after living with his aunt and uncle for 11 years, remember how his whole world changed when he learned this information. But Here's the thing, the world didn't change at all, right? What changed was his understanding of it. This new information about a wizarding world radically altered his worldview. The word radical comes from the Latin word meaning root. So it's like this new information, you're a wizard, Harry, you know, came to light to Harry and rooted his reality in a whole new life. It it, it put life itself into a whole new light. So his priorities, his understanding of how the world works changed, Uh, his education, economics, even his understanding of good and evil was completely and radically altered by this new information. Back to the real world, we're reminded of 9-11. I have a haunting memory of going to work that day and hearing a co-worker tell me things will never be the same again. That event shined a spotlight on so much that was good about our country and also so much of the work that still needed to be done. Much of what we've seen over the past 20 years can be seen in light of that day, that event. Or at least you could say this, if you were a 24th century historian and you wanted to understand the country as it existed in the first few decades of the 21st century, you, you would do well to use 9-11 to help you frame your understanding of that time period. So, our story today in Acts 9, 
This is a before and after story, if there ever was one. This particular story not only changed the life uh, and worldview of one man, it changed the course of world history. For centuries, we've carved up time itself with B.C. and A.D., before Christ, and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, um, even though historical evidence tells us that Jesus probably wasn't born in the year 1 A.D., and, and modern historical scholarship has taken to use the terms B.C.E., before the Common Era, and C.E., for Common Era, for that reference. It's impossible to deny that the life of Jesus of Nazareth was a hinge moment for all of history. Even if you don't declare him as Lord, it's impossible to deny that, that there was something about the life of Jesus that changed everything. There was before Jesus, and there was now that Jesus has come. But our story today shows a conversion story of a man that God used to get that word out. Jesus had told the disciples before the ascension that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them, and that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And it was the Apostle Paul, more than anyone else in those early years, who, who began the movement that would take the gospel to the ends of the earth as a largely Gentile congregation we owe much of our understanding of the gospel to the sacrificial work of the Apostle Paul, uh, how God worked through Paul. And today, I want us to have a look at his before and after story. Last week, T.D. Allen shared with us this story of the martyrdom of Stephen, who had been stoned for proclaiming the gospel, while a man named Saul of Tarsus, he watched with approval. Luke tells us that, that Saul watched everybody's coats cloaks or garments as this happened, and he heard Stephen's dying words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Saul was unmoved. He approved of Stephen's execution, and while Jesus' followers mourned the loss of Stephen, Saul ravaged the church, going from house to house, dragging off men and women who confessed loyalty to King Jesus and had them put in prison. Still, the church continued the work of the gospel all the while. Saul was, in the words of Luke, breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord. Saul, he wanted to play by the rules. He went to the high priest. He asked for documents to show to the synagogues of, of Damascus. He wanted a, a license to round up Jesus' followers. So, Acts chapter 9, here's how Luke puts it. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue, synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, it's an interesting phrase there, the way, Christianity, that really wasn't a thing yet. What, what, what we see here are followers, people, men and women who belonged to the way, not a way, they belong to the way. Uh, men and women, so that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In Galatians, Paul writes, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism, Paul says, beyond many in my own age, 
among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. The persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus, the one who breathed murderous threats on the church, this Saul was the one who became the Apostle Paul, an individual whose conversion would change the course of Western civilization and Eastern civilization for that matter. But before we go any further, it is important to say what does not happen. See, it might be easy for us as Christians today to assume that Saul of Tarsus converted from something called Judaism to something called Christianity. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it very clear that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. The faith, loyalty, and worship that Saul had towards the God of Israel was not altered by what was about to happen to him. In fact, I think it's clearly evident from the story that follows and from his letters that that his commitment to Israel's God was only strengthened by what's about to happen. That the Hebrew Shema was still 100% relevant. Do you know the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God is one. You shall worship him with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. It is vitally important that we remember that Saul would have walked away from the coming encounter that he was about to have, believing that, believing that, that Shema more fully than he ever had before. Israel was God's rescue mission to save the world, and Saul of Tarsus was about to find out exactly who was in charge of that project. So, uh, continuing in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, kind of a, um, a, a, a repeating of, of, of stories that we've seen before when God said, Abraham, Abraham, Abram, Abram, or David, David, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Because <laughs> I assume that if, you know, you're talking to me from heaven, you're probably, you know, a Lord of some type. So who, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who are traveling with him just stood speechless, hearing the voice, but not seeing anyone. Saul rose from the ground, and although Uh, His eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was there without sight and neither ate nor drank. A few things not to miss. First, evidently, he wasn't alone. There were other people on the road with him, individuals who heard the voice of Jesus but not seen anyone. They could only stand speechless. Luke doesn't give us a ton of information, but I think it's important for us to to note that that oftentimes when God shows up and does this kind of before and after work in our lives, there will be onlookers to the transformation. We're even told that these men led him by hand into Damascus. I just wonder if it's a good idea for us to ask, who are the onlookers? 
If you claim a before and after story, a story of salvation, a story where you came to the, to the knowledge and the understanding um, and the belief that Jesus Christ died for your sins, if you claim a before and after story yourself in Jesus, who were the onlookers or who are the current onlookers that, that, that would have seen the before and the after? If God was, was to do a mighty work in your life, who is it that's close enough to you that would notice if there was a big difference? Is there anybody close enough to you who would notice, and is the difference profound enough? A difference in the way you treat people. A difference in the way you speak. A difference in your language. A difference in your priorities. Never assume that spiritual transformation will not look like something to someone watching from the outside. I think this is why the the New Testament stresses the importance of loving others as they are rather than judging them according to your new worldview because you're in the after, but they're still in the before. Changing gears for a moment. I think of another crucial part of the story is is exactly what Jesus said to Saul. So, So walking on the road, Saul sees a blinding light and hears the voice of Jesus himself saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No. No, that's not what he says. He says, why are you persecuting me? It's vitally important to see that the work that God is doing in the life of the early church and the work that God is, um, is, is doing in the life of the church today is intimately connected to the life of Jesus. The church's work is God's work. To do the work of the church is to participate in the very mission of God to save the world. And when the church faces darkness and opposition and persecution, it is felt by our Lord and Savior. It's felt by Jesus himself. Why are you persecuting me? I feel it. I feel it when you hurt my children. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus himself. This is all to show and, and that when we are injured, when we are hurt, our pain is his pain. He feels our pain. I hope that that will offer you a little comfort in knowing that Jesus feels our pain alongside of us. But to, to follow Jesus is to be in Christ. We do not worship, like, like Kevin said, we don't worship a distant God. When I was in fifth grade, I actually had to do a uh, sign language uh, to from a distance. From a distance, the world is something. I forget. Uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry, where was I? Um, to follow Jesus is to be in Christ. We don't worship a distant God, uninvolved in the world's coming and goings. We, we worship a God who's never left us. We worship a God who's come down and pitched his tent in the neighborhood. Jesus is by our side even now, and he's given us the spirit to go out into the world and do the work of the church. And to follow Jesus' lead... If we're going to follow Jesus' lead, then, if Jesus is, you know, empathetic, if we can use that word, uh, then that means that, that our call is to step into the pain of others, even when it gets messy. Persecution is inevitable. It will take various forms throughout history. Read a history book, you'll see that. Oftentimes, persecution will come from within when the church becomes its own worst enemy. But never make the mistake of forgetting that Jesus feels every nail. Right now, the church, along with the wider society, at least in the United States, has been brought to our knees by anxiety 
and depression. COVID just shined a spotlight on the things that were there long before the pandemic. If you felt these pains, please know you're, you're not alone. There is no pain that you feel that he doesn't feel as well. It's God's desire that you would reach out for help. He wants to offer you new and abundant life, but the plan was never for you to go it alone. Back to Saul. He, led, he was led back to Damascus by God's lead. And he meets Jesus, uh, and he meets a, a Jesus follower named Ananias. Now, this isn't the same Ananias from a few weeks ago because he's dead. Um, yeah, sorry. God tells Ananias to go on over to Straight Street, um, and that's where he's going to find this guy Saul, and he'll be the one praying. Okay, which is always, by the way, a good thing to do when starting the after portion of a before and after story. He'll be the one praying, but before Ananias leaves, he hesitates. And he says to God, uh, Lord, I've heard stories about this Saul guy. Um, do, 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 you, do you know like the kind of evil that, that he's done to us? And the, the, you know that the chief priests have like given him authority to like drag us kicking and screaming from our homes? You, you, you sure that <clears throat> that's the guy? You want to go and, and you want me to go and, and, and meet? Re- really? Maybe, maybe I'll pick somebody else. You know, I, I don't know if that guy is the, is the right choice here. And here, here's the coolest, one of the coolest aspects of the Bible. God, our God, our Heavenly Father, just loves to use the most unlikely wreck of people to accomplish his means. God says, go. He has, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Because what Paul has to say is still going to be for the people of of Israel, the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, for the sake of my name. It's impossible, it's possible, probable that Acts was actually written during the Apostle Paul's imprisonment, right? So to those reading Luke's account for the first time, some might have heard of the work of this guy. They might have actually been familiar with how much he suffered for the sake of the gospel. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Eleven, starting in verse 21. Yeah. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, you want to boast, you want to talk about big things. I'm speaking as a fool, Paul says. I'm out of my mind. I'm kind of, he's kind of talking, I guess you could kind of say tongue-in-cheek here. He's talking maybe a little ironically. But anyway, he says, whatever anyone else dares boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Again, I'm talking out of my mind here, Paul says. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one, 
because if you, if you get any more lashes than that, then that might be like offensive. Um, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all of that, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches, for, the, for, for, for you all. Who is weak that I am not weak? Who, who is made to fall that I am not indignant? Here's the thing about suffering. God not only feels it, he uses it. That's the lesson of the cross. That's why Paul himself once said that he wanted to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. Paul's entire existence, his ministry, was one of a cruciform shape. When he suffered persecution, he knew full well that God intended to be glorifying even in this. So no, Ananias... You go on over to Straight Street. You find this soul of Tarsus, and then you watch at what I will do with this most unlikely character. So Ananias does what he's told, and he enters the house where Saul is staying, and he, and he sees this, this, this grand persecutor of the church, this dangerous man, kneeling in broken prayer, blinded by the light, but not quite revved up like a deuce. He was just this awestruck man who had been overwhelmed by God's transformative power awaiting his next instruction. And Ananias walks over to him, lays his hand on, on this man who had formerly breathed threats of murder on his friends. And what's the first thing that Ananias calls him? Brother. How's that for suffering for the sake of the Lord? Ananias swallows that fear, he swallows that pride, and he follows God's lead of love. Ananias says to Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you have came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the whole Holy Spirit, that you might be empowered to participate in the mission of God. No sooner had the words been out of Ananias' mouth than something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and, and he regained his strength, regained his sight. And then he got up. And what happened next? He said immediately something happened, that he did something immediately after he got up. He was baptized. Baptism isn't a magic trick. It's a sign it's a sign that the after portion of the before and after story of Jesus has begun. Paul himself tells us in Romans 6 that baptism, it's an it's a imitation of Christ's death and resurrection, the greatest before and after story of all time. Paul says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death and in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. So Saul stands up, he immediately goes to be baptized, and then he comes back and has dinner with the disciples in Damascus. That, that's not supposed to be subtle, right? He, he goes to be baptized, and then he comes home for dinner. So while baptism proclaims our faith and our membership in the family of God, it's table fellowship 
the Lord's table, the Eucharist, the Mass, communion, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, that sustains the people of God. Let me explain this before and after thing a different way. The truth is, I'm speaking for myself, uh, maybe you can sympathize, I never really had a, a, a Damascus Road experience. My, my family started going to church when I was in the seventh grade and uh, our new church. And then three or four years after that, I kind of view, as I think back, as kind of being the hinge years in my life, the before and the after. I'll admit that there was a before and after. That There was a real before and after there. That was, that there was a marked change that occurred when Jesus came into my family's life. But, but there was no, like, one day. There was no moment when I was blinded by the light. And if there was, I don't remember it. But there was a time before um, I was baptized. There was a time before I started making a habit of coming to the table of the Lord. And, and, and those two sacred activities, those two sacraments, mark me today for Christ. There are things that we do as a church that, that show the world that we participate in the life of the family. Um, the, 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 not just, you know, the communion is obviously something that we do more often than, than baptism, which is a one-time thing, but it's really not a one-time thing, right? Because every time someone new is welcomed into the family, every time someone new is baptized, it's something that we all celebrate. It's a part of something that, that, that we all do. So throughout the church, there's, there's lots of, of various kinds of ways in, that, 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 that of faithfully partaking in the sacraments. You know, this isn't the time to talk about, you know, infant baptism versus believer's baptism and the various different ways that we could talk about communion. But he, here's my point. Participating in them myself and participating in them with, with you all, with the church, those actions, those activities remind me that I am a member of the family of God. They remind me that I'm in the after part of the before and after, where before I was dead, now I am alive in Christ. Saul of Tarsus, he had some things in his past that would have made a lot of folks in the church think twice about inviting him to Sunday dinner. But in light of the cross, in light of new creation, in light of new life, it is our responsibility to invite others to be a part of our fellowship. When we want, we want our family to grow, right? We want to proclaim a Jesus-centered message that declares that there is nothing in any of our past, in anyone's past, that is so dark that it cannot be redeemed and used. He is your loving Father. He's your faithful friend. He's your Savior and your Lord. See, following Him isn't just a way to live. It's the way. The way of life. The way of new creation. It's true life. It's the life in Jesus. You are living the way that you were truly meant to live, or at least you're invited into that life. And whether it was a momentary Damascus Road experience or a slow process that took four years, if you choose to, if there, there is still a, if there is a before and after aspect to your story, it's something that you're going to live out. We're going to celebrate communion now. And, and if you choose to partake of communion, you, you're, you're, you're telling yourself, you're, you're telling others, you're telling God, 
Once I was dead, and now I'm alive. And if you're not there yet, that's okay. We are so glad that you're here. We hope that New Hope would be a place where you feel valued and loved, a place where you could ask honest questions. You don't ever have to worry about, gosh, I'm not allowed to ask that question in church. No, we want you to be completely honest with your questions and wrestle with matters of faith and doubt without feeling judged by, your, by, by the church, by others. I'll also add that if, that if you do find yourself partaking in communion and you haven't been baptized, uh, we are planning a baptism next month. Really looking forward to that. Uh, probably going to be July 18th, uh, and I'd love to talk with you about that. Please come and talk with me about it. Um, and the worship team is, is going to play a communion uh, tune for us. But before they do that, would you please stand and read with me from the Nicene Creed? 